The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi. Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Sarah Reinhart. She is the lead food systems and health analyst for the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists based in Washington, D.C. At the Union of Concerned Scientists, Ms. Reinhart applies nutrition science and public health research to develop policy positions that support a more healthful, sustainable, and equitable food system. Prior to joining the Union of Concerned Scientists, Ms. Reinhart served both the United Way for Southeastern Michigan and the YMCA of Metro Detroit as a nutrition consultant. Ms. Reinhardt is a fellow registered dietitian. She holds a master's degree in public health from the prestigious program at the University of Michigan, where she also earned a BA in women's studies. I have the pleasure of knowing Ms. Reinhardt from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Hunger and Environmental Nutrition Practice Group. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. You have a really interesting background from a dietitian's perspective in that you were really based on looking at food policy and regulations. So my first question to you, though, is what was it about the Union of Concerned Scientists that appealed to you? Great question. And for folks who may not be familiar with the Union of Concerned Scientists, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. We were founded more than 50 years ago with a mission to put rigorous, independent science to work to solve the planet's most pressing problems. We believe that the role of science in policymaking is really critical, as is the representation of people who are most often affected by the consequences of bad policies. So we work on challenges that affect public health, challenges that affect the environment. And for me, what was really compelling about UCS's work and their vision was just recognizing that critical intersection between policy that's science-based and also policy that's really representing the interests of groups that are often really marginalized and actually have been disenfranchised in the past by science and by the scientific process. So I think that there's, like any organization, UCS continues to evolve and and to do that work with authenticity, but I'm really appreciative that there's an opportunity there to really address the challenges that are harming a lot of communities. Yeah. And I just want to let our listeners know that if they want to learn anything more about the Union of Concerned Scientists, they can go to UCS usa.org and i will provide a link to that that's connected with this interview as well well one of the recent bodies of work that you have been focused on that is very interesting i think especially in these times of true crisis with regard to a, a global pandemic has to do with dietary guidelines and dietary recommendations and up until the covid-19 pandemic We in the United States, I think, were really focused on the dietary guidelines as they help to prevent chronic diseases that were non-communicable, so heart disease and cancer. 
And now we can maybe look at the dietary guidelines under several different lenses. For one, we want to look at the dietary guidelines and how they impact climate change. And maybe our eating patterns could help mitigate climate change. But now we also have this added layer that also lends to the issue of sustainability. And that is when we've got a communicable disease pandemic, those dietary patterns mean more now than ever before. So tell me, what led you to focus on the dietary guidelines and and what are they exactly? Yeah, that's a great question. Let's talk a little bit about what those dietary guidelines are and the history of how sustainability came to be a part of them (laughs) or not. And for those of you who aren't steeped in nutrition policy, we have this broad set of nutrition guidelines called the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And they're meant to provide information about what people should eat to stay healthy. So the U.S. government has been working with nutrition and medical experts to publish updated versions of the dietary guidelines every five years since 1980. And what this group of experts or committee does to help develop the guidelines is this. Over the course of a few years, this committee works together to evaluate a whole bunch of new science to decide what needs to change and what should stay the same from the last edition of the guidelines. And despite what you might see in the news, you know, there's a lot of flashy headlines out there about nutrition, but core nutrition recommendations actually haven't changed a whole lot from year to year. Eat a variety of fruits and veggies, get your whole grains, don't overdo it on salt or added sugar, things like that really tend to be the backbone of our dietary guidance. And as you mentioned, these have largely focused on non-communicable diseases. But back in 2015, which is the last time that the dietary guidelines were updated, there was something new and really interesting that this committee decided to look at. And that thing was sustainability. The committee saw all this new research coming out that was saying that the way we eat can actually impact our environment, which in turn impacts us. And the current average U.S. diet in particular, coupled with prevailing agricultural practices, is contributing to climate change, driving biodiversity loss, degrading natural resources like air, like soil, like water. And in short, the committee was recognizing that the food on our plates might be threatening the very existence of a healthy food supply in the future. And of course, that would put healthy diets further out of reach for a lot of populations. And this research they reviewed indicated that changing what we eat could not only reduce our environmental impacts, but also be better for human health in the process. And that might sound like a win-win, but for anybody who followed that process, you already know it didn't work out that way. That's because the committee's top-line findings said that, in general, a diet that's higher in plant-based foods and lower in animal-based foods is more health-promoting and is associated with less environmental impact than the U.S. diet. As you can imagine, that didn't sit well with the meat industry, and it didn't sit well with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So sustainability was taken off the table, and the 2015 dietary guidelines were published without it. So that's five years ago. Fast forward to today, of course, it's 2020. As I'm speaking these words, a group of scientific experts is working to evaluate the science that will shape the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines. 
Now, when they started this process more than a year ago, we just assumed the committee wouldn't be able to touch sustainability with a 10-foot pole. It was too politically charged. It was too challenging for everyone involved. Not to mention, we're now operating under an administration whose dismissal of science is sort of its calling card. So sure enough, the government did not ask the committee to look at the current science on sustainable diets. But a lot can change in five years. These last five years in particular brought climate change into national discourse in a way that was really unprecedented. These years were the hottest ever recorded. They produced some of the most extreme wildfires in history. Family farm bankruptcies hit an eight-year high as farmers across the U.S. faced extreme weather, rising debt. And meanwhile, you have these congressional resolutions, corporate alliances, youth movements that really helped catalyze climate actions. So our team at UCS kind of looked at the circumstances and said, well, if this committee isn't going to be able to do this research, we will. And we took a look at the methodology that the committee used back in 2015, which is publicly available. We put together our team of research and, you know, we, we did the research that the committee wasn't able to. And as we're finding out, it turns out people still <laughs> really care about protecting long-term public health and the environment. So that committee will issue its scientific report soon in May of 2020. And the committee chair actually has said that they'll discuss sustainability in their report in recognition of how important this topic is. Mm. So there are two points I want to bring up. The first is that there has been discussion about the conundrum that we're in with dietary guidelines because we have both the Department of Health and Human Services as well as the U.S. Department of Agriculture overseeing the process. And the endpoints for both groups are not necessarily at the same place. Do you want to talk a little bit about the potential conflicts of having both of those organizations overseeing the guidelines? Yeah. And you know what? Something I think is really important to touch on is that the example I just provided of the potential industry influence that happened to prevent sustainability from being incorporated into the guidelines, that is really the exception rather than the rule. I mentioned that since the 1980s, the core of our nutrition guidelines have really remained fairly consistent. So I think that actually is a testament to the way that the USDA and the Department of Health and Human Services have been able to structure this process and provide infrastructure that really allows them to facilitate a process in which the best science is selected. And as much as we all might like to be critical and, and look at these committee members' backgrounds and find industry ties, the process is really structured in a way that does tend to facilitate a really rigorous process. I will say, and, and I think this is a different issue entirely, but for folks who are looking at the industry ties that some of the committee members have, you can't have this conversation without mentioning that there is a real need for more public funding of nutrition research in this country. Some of the researchers who are taking industry funding sort of have their hands tied. And should that be a reason to discard their research? No. Should we be looking critically whenever industry is involved? Yes. But I think we also need to be taking into account this context here where the landscape for you know nutrition funding is just, it's barren. And so that's something I think that needs to really be talked about more and that we should be addressing for the next set of dietary guidelines. 
I agree. Let me take one break because we're at the halfway mark and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio and we are having a conversation with Ms. Sarah Reinhardt. She is the lead food systems and health analyst for the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And we are talking about a publication and an issue that was recently addressed The title of a recent paper is Systemic Review of Dietary Patterns and Sustainability in the United States. One of the issues that I wanted to also bring up, Sarah, with regard to these recommendations has to do with what's missing. Where are the gaping holes in research? And as you say, it's this kind of research is underfunded. It's also really difficult because people have so many variables It's very difficult to do really good nutrition research on people. We tend not to really do what we report. If we put people in a controlled laboratory setting, well, we don't really eat the way we do out in the free world. So there are all of these factors that we have to take into consideration. But all that aside, one of the gaping holes to me reflects on a quote that I have by Wendell Berry. He's the famous Kentucky farmer and poet. And he said, to be interested in food, but not food production, is clearly absurd. And I think that food production, the methodology by which we produce our food, has long been neglected as part of the equation of what is healthy eating. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a fantastic quote, and it's insightful, particularly in the current moment that we're in because we're really seeing now sort of the walls come down around our food system and we're starting to really understand how it's by design fairly dysfunctional and designed to really work well for some people and work really poorly for others, uh, like the people who are actually producing our food, uh, some of the resources that get used in the process or degraded like our soil or water. So I, you know, I think it's a, it's a valuable insight and is particularly important right now. And even with regard to guidelines to say, eat less meat, I think that for too long, we have put all meat in the same category without really factoring in where and how that meat is produced. Does beef, for example, come from a feedlot where the cattle are confined and fed grain often given antibiotics and hormones, or is the beef coming from, say, a grazing situation or a pasture-based system where the animals do not receive pharmaceuticals, they're much healthier, and as it turns out, that kind of grazing pattern actually can help mitigate climate with regard to building up carbon in the soil. Yeah, and I think to your point about, you know, where are the research gaps, and and I'd love to sort of touch on our paper findings here in a minute, but to speak to those gaps, we performed a systematic review of the current literature on sustainability and dietary patterns, but sustainability means so many things. (laughs) It means environmental sustainability, which, as I mentioned, is water use, it's greenhouse gas emissions, um, it's air quality. But there are also other dimensions here. There's social sustainability. There's economic sustainability. And to your point, there are different systems at play here. You know, for example, cattle raised with rotational grazing versus cattle raised in CAFOs um, that are owned by larger companies. 
And, you know, do we have the data that's granular enough to help us really identify the differences there and where the potential, you know, synergies and trade-offs are between, you know, the environmental, social, and economic dimensions of sustainability? So, so I think it's a, it's a really important question to ask. And one that, quite frankly, you know, we can look at studies and we can draw kind of broad conclusions, but that is a, a real, realistically, that is a gap in the data that we need to know more about, you know, what are the outcomes associated with, with these particular systems and particular ways of, of doing agriculture? Yeah. And, you know, even with regard to vegetables, I mean, every dietary guideline across the globe recommends that people eat more fruits and vegetables. But at the same time, in thinking about the meat issue, how and where vegetables are produced matter too. And I think that with the COVID-19 pandemic, as you mentioned, you know, how we are producing and where our food is coming from, who is producing it becomes ever more critical. So just as meat isn't meat, I would argue that kale isn't kale. And kale coming from my local regional farmer is likely to be more sustainable than kale that is grown in California and shipped halfway across the country to go into my supermarket. We're not factoring in the cost of fossil fuel in our food production. And there's a lot of variables at play there, right? So it's a it's a complex equation, which I think is what makes this type of research so difficult. Um, those are a lot of variables to factor in of you know, what are the fossil fuels used? What's the efficiency of those transportation methods? You know, there's, it's a lot to factor in. So I think this is really an evolving science and we'll continue, hopefully, to see progress here and to see finer points put on those research questions. Right. And even when our distribution models are thrown off, so when shipping or distribution becomes hampered because of, say, a global catastrophe, then that also impacts the kind of food availability that we have in our markets. Sure. And I, I, you know, Melinda, I'm really glad you brought up disruptions in our food supply because I think it's, it's pretty tough to have this conversation and not address the elephant in the room, which is this crisis we're having right now um, with COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And one of the things that we've been hearing a lot about in the midst of this public health crisis is the role that frontline workers, particularly food producers and food workers, are playing. And these are our country's essential workers. We rely on them to help us keep food on our plates, even when everything else is stopping in its tracks. But this is also a workforce that has seen really extreme economic inequality and health disparities for a long time. The people that work throughout the U.S. food system, from farms to warehouses to grocery stores and restaurants, Nearly 40% of whom are people of color, experience greater poverty, poor healthcare access, higher occupational health hazards relative to the general population. And ag, as many of us know, is among the most dangerous industries in the United States. So farm workers who, again, are predominantly folks not born in the U.S. and are considered migrant or seasonal workers are facing frequent exposure to hazards like pesticides, extreme heat, dangerous machinery, and this is all translating into really high rates of illness, injury, and death. And, you know, as, as the literature has, has studied fairly well, both low-income populations and many communities of color are more vulnerable to the environmental consequences of unsustainable food systems, including things like climate change and water pollution. 
So, you know, we have a population of farm and food workers who have been exploited by the food system for years and have been fighting for food justice for just as long. But a crisis like this makes all of this so much more visible to the public because we are really only as healthy as our most vulnerable neighbor or food worker. And suddenly it's really hard to ignore that the people who grow and pick our food could fall victim to the pandemic in a heartbeat because they're routinely denied information and adequate health protections. It's very hard to ignore that the people who are usually stocking our shelves and checking out our carts at Whole Foods are on picket lines because they aren't getting adequate paid sick leave. So this, just to bring it back here to the concept of sustainable food systems, this is what we mean when we talk about a food system that's truly sustainable. You know, this this paper that we just published focused on the environmental dimensions of sustainability because that's where a lot of the research is. But we need to be working toward a system that can feed all of us fairly without exploitation, without abuse, with health protections for all of us and, and not just when it's a crisis. Yeah, that is such a good point. Because we see the word sustainability thrown around, and yet I don't know how often we sit down and talk about what sustainability really means. And I've learned it to be like you think about it like a three-legged stool. So you have the health aspect. You also have the social aspect. You have the environmental aspect. But we can't look at each of these stool legs individually. We have to see how they all interconnect and you're right. I think that sustainability for a long time has been focused on environment, and that's important. You can't have a healthy economy without a healthy environment. But a lot more emphasis needs to go on that social or humane factor where we must look at how workers who are putting food on our table and they are largely invisible and brown skinned are treated. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, let's get back to your excellent paper. Systemic Review of Dietary Patterns and Sustainability in the United States. What would you like our listeners to know about this report? Sure. So this is a paper I authored with a team of colleagues from the Union of Concerned Scientists and the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, all women, I should mention, and all brilliant. And the paper is a review of studies that look at the environmental impacts of all the different types of diets that people could follow, from what we're currently eating in the U.S. to the types of diets recommended by national dietary guidelines to diets like the Mediterranean diet. And a quick important distinction here, I know when most people hear the word diet, they think about weight loss plans. I get it. That's actually not what we're talking about here. We're using the word diet to describe the kinds of foods and the amount of food that people typically eat. So just your typical eating pattern. And, you know, we can dive into the details a little bit, but I will give you our top line findings. One thing that we sort of suspected going into this is that the body of research on sustainable diets has just grown leaps and bounds during the last five years. We found that between July 2015 and September 2019, there were 95 new peer-reviewed papers that were published on this topic, including 22 focused specifically on U.S. diets. And that is, for reference, more than four times the number of articles that were published on this topic between 2000 and 2015 in about a quarter of the time. So a really impressive growth in research over a relatively short time period. Something else we found, which was actually a little bit more surprising, is that the average U.S. diet, so the types of foods that we're typically eating as a population, may actually not be better for the environment than the healthy diet that the government recommends. 
Specifically, the studies in a review showed that if everybody in the U.S. suddenly switched over to a healthy diet recommended by the dietary guidelines, we might actually see similar or greater greenhouse gas emissions, energy use, and water use. So it really highlights the importance of thinking about sustainability. Okay, so Sarah, what we want to do at this point is to pull out some key points that you want our listeners to know about this really important report. Sure. So the the top line finding here really, which is that the primary dietary pattern that's recommended by the dietary guidelines may result in similar or greater heat trapping emissions, energy use, and water use compared to the current U.S. diet. What that really means is that it's essential that we have sustainability incorporated into U.S. dietary guidelines because a win-win is definitely possible. There's a lot of research that shows that we can have a diet that is much healthier and that is much more sustainable from an environmental perspective. But unfortunately, it may not be the healthy diet that the current dietary guidelines are recommending. And you know, folks have asked, well, what's the cause of the increased environmental impacts going from our current diet to the recommended diet? And that actually is attributed to an increase in fruits and vegetables and dairy. But the other thing that I want to point out to folks is that this does not mean in all capital letters that we should stop eating fruits and vegetables. Far from it. The health impacts or the health benefits of fruits and vegetables are way too good. But studies do suggest that the environmental impact of a big increase in fruit and vegetable intake can be offset by a relatively smaller decrease in meat and dairy, both of which could benefit health. So this is just, you know, it's a question about sort of adjusting all these levers. If you picture each part of our diet as a different lever, what the science is trying to figure out is, you know, how can we adjust all those levers so we get the best possible benefits for our health, so we get the best possible benefits and least impact on our environment, you know, and then adding the other dimensions in that we talked about, how do we do that with a food system that is supporting its workers, providing livable wages and safe working conditions, and really making sure that communities can be resilient and thrive. And wouldn't it be wonderful for one day to have a set of national dietary guidelines that truly take into account all of the factors that lead to a truly sustainable diet? <laughs> a girl can dream. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we know the areas that we have to reduce. We know we have to reduce sugar intake, for example. We know that in order to prevent chronic diseases, that is a vital step in the right direction. As you mentioned, we know we have to increase more fruits and vegetables and more fiber as we learn more about the microbiome. But I think that weighing the sustainability factors of where and how that food is produced is truly something that maybe we haven't considered so much in the past. Mm -hmm. Okay, Sarah, our time is coming to a close, and I just wanted to make sure that you had an opportunity to send us off with any last important message. Sure. I do just want to emphasize that by making it a matter of practice to review sustainability research when we update national dietary guidelines, you know, including the research that we just published, we could really start to lay the groundwork for a way of eating and producing food that not only enables better health and stewardship of natural resources, but more profitable farms, fair supply chains, and resilient communities. So I'll leave you with that. 
All right. And I will leave our listeners with the website again. It's ucsusa.org. And I will direct you to many of the UCS publications that deal with sustainability and diet and preventing chronic disease. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Sarah Reinhardt, Lead Food Systems and Health Analyst for the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you.